Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. My name is Peter Ravel, and I'm the co-host of this show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. Tyler, we're at the Texas Tribune in Austin, Texas, with a very special guest. Uh, we'd like to welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast, Kia Collier, who is a writer for the Texas Tribune. Welcome to this podcast, Kia. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, we have the privilege of uh, interviewing Kia today because she is the uh, author of a recent piece in the Texas Tribune that is quite near and dear to the hearts of all folks around the country, uh, which is called can the masters of the flood protect the coast from hurricanes and uh, Kia had the chance to go to the Netherlands and find out about all of the professionals over there in uh, uh, the Dutch professionals who know a lot about how to protect the coast that's what we're going to talk about today Tyler totally it's gonna be a great show uh, Kia has been covering the Texas coast for a long time and is a wealth of knowledge uh, and boy we're really interested in getting the skinny on what the Dutch are doing uh, but before we do that Peter let's have a quick word from a very important sponsor <laughs> well the, the sponsor of this podcast is Coastal News Today and the American Shoreline Podcast Network we are uh, we are pleased to, we've produced over 160 shows now Tyler I think we are in the tens of thousands of listeners now so the network has really been been great and it's a chance for folks to be sponsors of the network and let us know if they can uh, can jump on. Yeah, there are so many great companies out there that uh, work on the American shoreline uh, from the East Coast, the Northeast, down the Eastern Seaboard, Florida, the Gulf of Mexico, California, Oregon, Alaska, Hawaii, all of those firms. Get your story out there. Be heard. We are an awesome platform for you to uh, explain why you are so good at what you do. And we know you are good at what you do. And uh, get on the network. We have sponsorship packages available. Uh, reach out to us, Peter at CoastalNewsToday.com, Tyler at CoastalNewsToday.com, and we will do our best to accommodate you. Yeah, everybody, thanks a lot. So, Kia, uh, thank you for being on the podcast. Yeah, you're welcome. I'm always happy to talk about hurricanes and the coast. Well, I think the story that you did in the Texas Tribune, and if you haven't seen it, y'all, it came out July 15th. It's currently on the website. Uh, tell us about the, the time. I mean, I love the name of the story. It says it all really for me and really got our attention. Uh, yeah, I mean, the question is, um, there's this project that uh, the state of Texas and uh, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers has proposed uh, for the Texas coast. Uh, specifically the Houston-Galveston region, um, that is looking increasingly Dutch, if you will. Um, it, uh, it's gone through revisions recently, but it's, you know, a system of uh, dunes and levees, you know, along the, along the beach. It's meant to protect everyone. Uh, massive storm surge barrier gates, which is really yeah. the, the kind of iconic Dutch um, part about it. But it also, it blocks storm surge right at the coast, which is with a combination of, you know, hard infrastructure and soft infrastructure, which is um, really um, the kind of Dutch, Dutch philosophy is protect everyone, stop it right at the coast, don't let people build right on the coast. Um, and it seems to be working for them. Um, no one, I was telling you all before, uh, we started recording that no one has died in a flood there since 1953. So in 66 years. Um, and that's compared to hundreds of people in Texas um, just in the last last 20 years. Wow, that's incredible. And so I think one of the like hallmark pieces of this piece of journalism, because 
you know, we've been following, all of our listeners are by this point super familiar with the uh, the Ike Dyke proposal, obviously, it's that's not its official name anymore, but uh, we've been following it with bated breath because this is a, one of the most complex engineering projects ever in American history, possibly in like human history. So this is a major story. Peter's given me the eye. Well, like, I think human a, history might be that's, a little ambitious. Yeah, but uh, the, coast, with the coastal barrier, they call it now, uh, $32 billion. My, my point is, is that the Dutch have deal. been, we've been hearing about the... How great the Dutch are. So you got the, one of the hallmark pieces of this piece of journalism is you went there. You actually went there with a team uh, of students and uh, leaders. And the idea was to, I think, learn from them. And we are just so interested in learning about them. But maybe we should start with what is the Netherlands like? Like, I've never been. What Tell me tell me what it's like to be there. Yeah, it's very uh, tidy. You know, there's this system of canals and you know the countryside i spent most of my time in in the major cities but we spent a lot of time on a bus just going down to especially the southwestern part of the country which is uh where the delta the projects uh part of the delta works um kind of protected it's where the big storm surge barriers are located the big port of rotterdam industrial area exactly so we spent a lot of time on a bus going through the countryside and it's very kind of monotonous but pretty it's you know um canals windmills uh greenhouses with tulips in them and um lots of sheep um and it's i was um really blown away to learn that the Netherlands is the second largest export of agricultural goods to the United States and the world. And it's wow. it's tiny. It's 17 million people um, as opposed to, uh, what is it, 25 million in Texas now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's tiny. It's absolutely tiny. Um, so it's very tidy. Um, it's, you know, you can't really tell. There are lots of, you know, levees and dikes with roads and bike bike paths on top of them. Everyone rides bikes in the, in the Netherlands, mm-hmm. uh, which is great because it's so flat. Um, and you you kind of can't really tell, like, the unless you're right on the coast and looking at these massive barriers, and which are obviously flood control related, you don't really know that there's flood control around you. It's so built into the environment. And uh, polling actually shows that um, a majority of Dutch citizens have no idea that their country is vulnerable to flooding because really? it's not been an issue, you know, wow. and there hasn't been major flooding in 66 years. Um, so people don't know. So w- at the what describe to me like Dutch, because that's very interesting to me. I would have thought if if you were Dutch, is it Dutch? Is that the way you describe the people the yes. of the Netherlands? Yeah, the Netherlands. Yeah. The Dutch. Okay. The Dutch. So the, and it's not called Holland, I learned. So. Okay. North and South Holland are regions of the Netherlands. Um, they're part of the country. The country as a whole is the Netherlands. So yes. if anyone calls it Holland, you can correct them. And what's the deal with Belgium? Is it in there? <laughs> yeah, Belgium is directly to the south. Okay. It is, yeah. The country. An independent Yeah, it's a separate country. country. Yes, Brussels is okay. the capital. We're just it's a little the, geography. The head of the, the, head of the EU is in Brussels. I'm, uh, I'm interested. The capital of the EU. <laughs> <laughs> when we when we first came in, we, we were describing um, the culture a little bit there. And uh, it's interesting that the polling would suggest that they're, they don't, I guess, self-identify as being at risk. Yet, uh, when I think, uh, as someone who's never been to this country, about that country, I do think of, like, waterworks and managing water. Is that, is that ingrained in the, the culture there? Is it, a, is it a uniquely coastal culture? Yes and no. I think 
So I, I had mentioned that there had been, there's been no deaths from flooding since 1953. Um, that year, a very freak Hurricane Katrina-like storm hit the southwestern part of the country particularly hard. It killed um, 1,800 people, which almost identical death toll to Katrina, actually. Wow. Um, and it devastated the southwestern part of the country. And you'll find that... Um, that's it, the memory of that storm is really ingrained in that region. People remember it. People's grandparents remember it. Um, I interviewed a woman who um, just she rode out the storm on a roof with her family and lost multiple family members. And it was just it was super traumatic. And um, so in that part of the country, people do do remember it. Um, and of course, I mean, officials, it's very it's probably ingrained in older people, maybe more than younger people, I suppose. Um, they've been around. They kind of understand the, the system way more. They understand why there are so many canals. They understand that all these raised mounds are levees, et cetera. But, I mean, I guess it's um, increasingly becoming not a part of the culture. Um, and uh, experts are really concerned about that because, you know, their uh, climate change is happening. They're, you know, thinking we're going to need to do all these big flood control projects to prepare for this. And if people don't view it as a threat, they're not going to support it. Um, So they're kind of dealing with a public awareness problem that's, you know, it's kind of eroded over the 66 years since that massive disaster. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, it was great to me, uh, Kia, in the story that you wrote. Uh, It's an extensive, long-form story. And I have to say, one of the best summaries of the proposed coastal barrier in the Galveston Bay system. Uh, you talked to the academics involved at uh, Texas a at Galveston, Bill Merrill, and uh, Brody as well, uh, Jim Blackburn, uh, the Corps of Engineers project leader, so that I think you brought together all of those interests. And what was fascinating to me about the couple of things that jumped out was, was Texas's focus here that you really brought to uh, light in the story there are real interest and fascination with the Dutch system of flood management and control. Uh, how did you, con- my first question is, how did you convince your editors to send you? And this is obviously something that the Tribune has been following, uh, coastal flooding and risk in Texas. Tell us about the, 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 the publication's focus uh, here. For one, the Tribune is a wonderful place that uh, gives their reporters a lot of freedom to pursue whatever they want. I mean, essentially, if you have a good pitch. Um, And this, particularly, I had a good pitch on it because I'd been reporting on this issue for years. Um, I started reporting on it first when I was at the Houston Chronicle, um, reporting on county government and kind of this this debate and which was kind of local at the time these academics were you know warning uh you know public officials that they needed to do something and uh there was just it was very slow for you know for several years um and we did a project in i'm gonna forget the year now 2016 um called helen high water uh which kind of explored that in action, and we partnered with ProPublica on it, and um, there's this um, amazing um, uh, data apps, you know, developer, data visuals developer at ProPublica named Al Shaw, who took all these storm models on supercomputers and crunched them down to show 
where the water would go um, in the Houston area during a worst case storm. Um, And it won a Peabody. So uh, (laughs) I did notice that. That tells you it's the best. Yeah. So for the heat, you know, it's uh, it's an issue we've been covering for a long time. It's gotten a lot of um, notice. And um, so when we got the invite, actually, from A&M Galveston, um, I asked my editors and they said, sure, I think we we owe this to you, um, especially given that the plan is looking increasingly more more Dutch, you know, right. the revisions they've made just in the past couple of, of months. Well, let's let's uh, introduce and refresh our audience's uh, memory a little bit. For those regular listeners may go back and listen to Kelly Burks Cope's interview, and we've done a couple of stories, uh, podcasts on, on the project, but for the benefit of folks new, can you tell, can you ge- generally describe what the Corps of Engineers and the Texas General Land Office are planning uh, as a flood protection strategy for the Galveston Bay system. So I'll start with they introduced a, a plan, a TSP, or uh, we're joking before this that we're going to have to use many acronyms, but the yeah. original plan, which they introduced in October, um, would have built um, essentially, I think, 17-foot-high levees along the main roadways of Galveston and Bolivar. Um, and then, um, you know, had, I think it was mainly one massive storm surge barrier gate over the deepest part of the ship channel where ships, you know, traverse. And then a whole bunch of vertical lift gates on either side. Right. Um, and people really hated it. <laughs> um, <laughs> it did not go well. Yeah, it didn't go well. The plan as it stands now is still controversial, actually, but... The loudest people were, you know, people who were going to be left on the coastal side of the levee. And, you know, they were like, you know, it's funny because I went down to an open house in, in Galveston when they, you know, shortly after they had released this plan and people were simultaneously saying, I accepted the risk when I moved to the coast. Why is the government even doing anything? But also, why aren't they protecting me, you know, with this plan? And um, it's a little bit, uh, you know. I don't want to say hypocritical, but it's it's it was kind of funny the juxtaposition of those um, contentions of those people. But um, you know, it's politically a lot easier, and this is something that Merrill, Dr. Merrill at Anm Galveston, who um, has really preached the Dutch gospel for years and came out with the initial protection plan, um, has really stressed is that you need to protect everyone, and that's as I said earlier. It's the Dutch philosophy, you know, protect everyone right at the coast, stop the storm surge right at the coast. Um, And so they have since then revised the plan. And it's like it's very fluid. And actually, a few days before the story (laughs) ran or maybe a day before um, the Army Corps told me, we're actually considering some more changes to the plan. Anyway, I'll get to that. So what they did was they um, dropped the roadway levees for a sand dune system. Um, beachfront sand dunes, they say 12 feet high at this point, which is um, would protect against a 100-year storm, according to their modeling. Um, and then um, swapping the single storm surge barrier gate for two of them, which they say would have ecological benefits and then also the added benefit of you know, if one gate, if a single gate were to fail, it would halt ship traffic in the Port of Houston, which is the largest in the country by many measurements. Um, and if there are two, like the odds of that happening fail. So it's um, it's not redundancy, but something, you know, of that sort. They call it redundancy. Um, yeah. So um, the sand dunes, the big difference is that 
if they're that small, um, Merrill and others said they need to be fortified. They need to have levees or some kind of, you know, or clay, hardened clay, something underneath them, T-walls, something like that. Um, and originally they were saying, no, we're not going to do that because of impact on uh, nesting turtles, the impact of, you know, nesting of endangered turtles. And the change that they called me a few days before the story and said, we're actually looking at fortifying them now. And it was like, okay, so... It's very much like Merrill's plan, and Merrill feels, I think, very vindicated. Well, it, it's such a complicated project. $32 billion is one of the cost estimates that's out there. Uh, this is for the coastal barrier system, as you're saying. Uh, for folks out there, uh, Bolivar Peninsula is essentially a barrier island at the at the entrance of the Houston-Galveston uh, ship channel. Yeah, it's to the north of Galveston. To, to north and this, and Galveston to the south. The, the gap between Bolivar Peninsula and Galveston Island is about two miles wide. And this is where the Corps of Engineers is talking about having a flood control gate, as you said, a two-part gate, uh, some sort of uh, swing gate over the 55-foot deep Houston Ship Channel entrance that can open and close, and then this other sort of gated structure, a little bit like the Bonnie Carey Spillway, I think it reminds me of in over on the Mississippi River, but uh, huge, huge project. Um, and the state, both at the core Galveston district, the general land office, uh, and the folks locally in the Harris County, Houston, Galveston area, right, have been making these trips to Mecca. I kind of think of it as coastal engineering Mecca. They've been going to, New, uh, to the Netherlands, meeting with the officials there, uh, when you went, and and you're from the Houston area, worked at the Houston Chronicle, does it seem like the right place to go for that? What was your sense? Are we is this place worthy of of sort of this position we've put it on in the discussion of Texas shore protection or, or Galveston Bay shore protection? Well, no one has died there from a flood in 66 years, so they're c- clearly doing something right. Um, you mentioned the, you know, the port and the opening between Bolivar and Galveston. The two-gate system they're now looking at looks very similar to the Mazatlan barrier in the Netherlands, which guards the port of Rotterdam, which is the busiest port in Europe. Right. Um, and so, you know, they're it is comparable um, in a lot of ways and um, you know it can be applied to to the Texas coast I think there are big differences Um, uh, namely we get hurricanes and the Dutch do not get hurricanes Um, and there's some disagreement about how much that matters um, but certainly hurricanes have um, fast and furious storm surge it's very high it's quick Um, the storm surge from the North Sea storms in the Netherlands are um, they last longer so they have a bigger potential of eroding levees over time but they're lower and so you know you talk to Merrill and he says it doesn't really make that much of a difference but you know other people say I talked to Bruce Ebersole who's a former Army Corps um, engineer uh, with the Mississippi District um, and he's working with Merrill and all of that and he said um, it does make a difference you have to design levees higher um, you know here and a hundred year storm here is probably more intense than it is in the in the Netherlands and they like to say 
10,000 year storm. That's kind of their their design standard for the coastal um, barriers anyway. And so it's like, what is that here, a 500 year storm? Or his point is that it's hard to compare and that if you were to take the system in the Netherlands and apply it to Texas, it wouldn't offer um, a similar level of protection. It would offer a lower level of protection, which is um, pretty interesting. But you know, everyone, countries all over the world are looking to the Dutch for um, advice as they, you know, face sea level rise and climate change. And, you know, it can be applied. Um, there are people who um, think that the Dutch are have been irresponsible and trying to export this system that they have um, without realizing that, you know, government and, you know, there are huge differences in government and society and culture in other places, including the United States, is incredibly different. Um, it's a national issue there. Flooding is a national issue. It's a third of the country that's below sea level. Um, it would flood massively if they didn't have this massive system. Yeah. So. Well, it's, it's, I think that one thing's for certain. They have invested over, what, hundreds of years? Um, I, you, I can't calculate or even offer a, a, an amount of money and, and brain investment in managing water and flooding that it's worth studying them just for because they have done that. Now, where I think <clears throat> what's interesting is I do see uh, fingerprints of Dutch, of the trends that I'm seeing in, in the Netherlands uh, all over the place. When we were in the San Francisco, uh, in San Francisco for the International Ocean Film Festival, we spoke with the San Francisco port director. And her proposal was because the old seawall that uh, protects the bay, the, the San Francisco, the city of San Francisco from the bay uh, is super old and needs to be replaced and built up. And she's like, hey, maybe we'll build this wall and then over the wall and outside of the wall will be natural g green stuff. Well, that's what that's what we're seeing in the Netherlands. Um, one of the things, though, that is very different. Well, and I also want to say that the idea that protect everyone is really that's really smart. And they that's like they've had that from the very beginning. And that kind of makes the well, it's a 10,000 thing because we're we're protecting everybody, everybody. And it's going to cost a lot because we're protecting everybody. They're not going to run into the political decision of uh oh, you're your house is on the wrong side of the thing. Like that is not, that is a non-starter. They're going to spend the money to make sure everyone's protected, um, which then will necessitate certain building codes and keeping people away from high, I mean, it just changes the whole calculation that we haven't had. So the question is, and this is my question, can we intercept that? I mean, just say in the Houston Galveston area, uh, let alone nationally, because uh, as Kelly Burks Copes told us, this project is being used as almost a bellwether, a, 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 a pilot, to, to, you know, it's being studied by New York and Boston and everyone. So, you know, can we intercept that Dutch uh, protect everyone philosophy or is it going to be, is that, and is that necessary? What do you think? I think there are big, so the question of whether we can copy the engineering and all of that. Yeah, I think of course we can, we can, you know, emulate it, whether we'll build to protect a 10,000 year storm, probably not you know, as listeners probably know, a hundred year storm is the design standard generally in the U.S. It's 
what they protected New Orleans to, and of course they're now having to, um, the Army Corps is now looking at revising those levees and revamping them because sea level has risen more quickly than they thought. Um, so there's, you know, the engineering question, yes, we can probably emulate the engineering, but, you know, as I said, flooding is not a national issue here. And $32 billion, you know, is a lot of money. And how are you going to convince a congressman from Kansas that, you know, Texas really needs this absent a Hurricane Katrina-like thing? We have a very um, reactive system. And, you know, it should be said that the Dutch, after that 1953 flood, it took a disaster for them to get get their act together. Um, but it's a, it's a cultural thing. It's our system of government. They've been dealing with, you know, the first dikes were built there in the early Middle Ages. And shortly after that, water boards were created um, because neighbors were flooding each other. Farmers were flooding each other accidentally. Water boards were founded to, um, you know, work out those disputes. Um, and they're taxing entities. They're the earliest um, democratically elected yeah. bodies in the Netherlands, if not Europe. And so the Netherlands has had funding, a funding stream for flood control for centuries. And they, they're very well funded. They have a very low risk tolerance because they have so much to lose. It's just not that way here. Um, we don't, um, people are insured. There isn't flood insurance <laughs> in the Netherlands because they're so well protected behind these Everyone's protected. barriers. You pay taxes. Everyone's protected. Yeah. So it's just a very different cultural um, system. There are a lot of a lot of differences. So yeah, we might be able to copy the engineering, but whether we'll be able to fund it in one fell swoop and really get this done is a big, big question. And even you know, Army Corps officials, uh, you know, Kelly Burkscope said. Um, this is probably so it's it's 2035 is the earliest that this will happen and even she said that's a very ideal best case scenario we'll probably get incremental funding for this um a few billion dollars here and there maybe after hurricanes um and people really fear and have feared for years that it will take a really bad storm for this to be funded and local officials there were really hopeful that hurricane harvey would provide uh, the political impetus to fund this project, but it wasn't ready. It wasn't eligible for funding because the plan hadn't been completed. So instead, Congress gave Texas uh, about $4 billion to complete another section of the coastal um, protection system that they envision. Um, and that's not part of the $32 billion, which right. covers um, $32 billion is the coastwide, almost coastwide um, price tag. So that includes habitat restoration near South Padre, all of that. The coastal barrier system near Houston-Galveston makes up a majority of that. It's like $20 million, right. or billion, I'm sorry, $20 billion, uh, with the barrier gates making up about $17 billion of that. So that's it's the most expensive part of it. Um, yeah, so... Well, there's a lot to unpack there, but I think one of the uh, things I wanted to ask you about, because the Tribune uh, does such a good job covering Texas politics here in Austin, and the Trib Fest is coming up in September. Their offices afford an amazing view of the Capitol we are, building. We're a couple of blocks from the Capitol yeah. uh, in Austin, Texas, and the Texas Tribune as a major news outlet covers that. But when you we talk about the inland senators, like, boy, there has to be a big enough disaster to break the political logjam. People in Kansas don't really understand why $32 billion for Galveston, Houston, blah, 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 right? My question is in Texas, 
state representatives and and senators from Amarillo struggle with the investments necessary for the Texas coast, uh, or even in Dallas or Travis or Tarrant County, uh, El Paso. I mean, the notion that Texas uh, is ready to make the kind of investments is. What is what is the Tribune? What do you guys that's see a, in our yeah. state politics, that's let a, alone our national that's politics? That's a really fair point. Um, you know, I've been talking nationwide. Flooding isn't even, or so storm surge and hurricanes aren't even a statewide statewide issue, right. much less a mm-hmm. nationwide issue. Um, flooding has you know rain based flooding, which. It's a very difficult distinction to make um, between rain-based flooding and flood control and and hurricane storm surge. People, I think, get confused. They think, given all the coverage of Houston, that Harvey hit Houston. It did not hit Houston. By the time Harvey got to Houston, mm-hmm. it was a tropical storm. Right. The issue was not storm surge there. It was At rain-based all. flooding. So the issue was flood control projects and you know um, Houston being a concrete island on top of a swamp and not... <laughs> Not doing a fair characterization. Doing, no offense to yeah. the people in Houston. We love Houston. We love Houston. They but take, it is great. Yeah. That's what it is. They take issue with that, but that's the, kind of the the joke or whatever. So, um, yeah, I talked to so land commissioner George P. Bush in the for the story, and it's kind of so I mentioned the four billion that that Congress appropriated for. Um, I guess I didn't finish that thought, but it's the a system of um, levy rehab, rehab, rehab and then new levies on the upper Texas coast and then just south of Galveston. They call it the bookends project because it's it would um, fit around the coastal barrier system. So some levies near Freeport, some levies near Port Arthur, Orange County, that kind of thing. Right. Um, but Texas needs to put up matching funds for that project. Um, that's typically how it works. It's my understanding yep. Yep. Um, to go way far back, um, you know, President Ronald Reagan, um, started basically requiring that local states and governments put up, you know, a share of project costs as a good faith kind of thing. Typically 65, 35%. Um, Texas w- will need to send $1.4 billion to the feds to draw down that $4 billion for this project that's in the pipeline, part of the, the coastwide protection system. And Commissioner Bush couldn't get state lawmakers to even do that this session. They they gave two hundred million, and right. now they're looking at having to take out a loan from the Texas Water Development Board to fund this. And really, and they left nine billion dollars in the rainy day fund at the same time. And I so his fear is, if Texas can't even put up the matching funds for this project that's already in the pipeline. You know, he said the Army Corps made it very clear that it will be a major problem for any other part of the project. Man, yeah. so that $4 billion federal appropriation that uh, the state received at, through the Galveston District, as you say, requires the 35% state match, somewhere around $1.4 billion out of the Texas legislature. They took a small step in that direction, so we're not even talking about the match for the coastal barrier, the $32 billion, or the, let's just say for the Galveston Bay system, somewhere in the neighborhood of $20 billion. A third of that is another $6 billion at least. Um, this local share component, when we say local, I guess in the vernacular of the core, they'd say the non-federal share, uh, which is the state in this case. Uh, here's my the thing I've always wondered about, the Houston uh, petrochemical industry, which is... If you talk to Jim Blackburn, as you did in the story, 
he talks about the environmental risks to the entire state, if not certainly the Galveston Bay system. As you put in the story, thousands of storage tanks of petrochemical compounds and all sorts of dangerous stuff, toluene, xylene, plastics, all this stuff right on the water. It's probably the largest concentration of petrochemicals on the planet. Um, I'm saying probably. In the nation, for sure. And and so a storm surge into into the Houston petrochemical complex, if it ruptures one of these things, he says environmental disaster, right? And I bring this up because... When we're talking about saving these industrial sites, private sector industrial sites, I'm wondering where is the petrochemical industry is and putting the first billion dollars on the table, the oil and gas industry, the folks who are going, oh, my God, this could wipe us out. The liabilities are extraordinary. Here's our check. Did you, what's the story there? A lot of people, uh, you know, that's one of the many points you can make about this is, you know, um, this is, and this is the overarching point. You mentioned the environmental disaster. The case that, you know, Commissioner Bush and others who are advocating for this project are making to Congress is that this is a national security issue. The Houston Petrochemical Complex, which is the largest in the country, one of the largest in the world, produces a third of the jet fuel in the country. Um, It's 14%-ish of their oil refining capacity. You already saw with, you know, um, Hurricane Barry, Bobby, whatever. Uh, Barry, that just slid by. (laughs) Okay, Barry, yeah. yeah. I mean, even that affected refining on the Gulf Coast. You know, Ike, uh, Harvey, um, gasoline prices spike. If those refineries were taken offline, it would have a huge national economic impact. Mm -hmm. It would affect also, um, you know, production of consumer goods, plastic. So it's not only fuel that those facilities produce, it's plastic pellets that are shipped all over the world and used here. Yeah. The the number one export commodity of the Port of Houston is plastic and resin. That's right. Yeah. So it would also affect the supply chain as well. You know, consumer goods would go up. You'd probably pay more for your Amazon plastic goods, but right. um, also the environmental aspect of it. And that's what Jim Blackburn um, has has really um, hammered is that there are thousands of storage tanks along the ship channel, hundreds of, you know, they carry um, oil, you know, toxic chemicals, pollutants, and there are no design standards, limited design standards mm-hmm. for, um, you know, uh, how you design them to withstand hurricanes and flooding, and um, they're at huge risk of dislodging and breaking open. Right. These and tanks, yeah, yeah, these tanks. It could be a huge, huge issue. It's something that state lawmakers discussed this session. Actually, like, wow, there are no one's policing how these tanks are designed. There's a huge build out along the Gulf Coast right now with um, the oil boom in West Texas, yeah. and there are more and more tanks every day, and. Yep. Yeah, it's a, it's a huge, huge environmental issue. I'm not sure I answered your original question. Well, I, I, think, I, I think we're on the, the right track here. What we're talking about here is is sort of the culture that we face in the United States, different in the Netherlands, where you've got sort of a national sentiment of risk. And, um, and first of all, in fairness to the United States, the, there are 280 miles of coast in the Netherlands. There are about that many miles in the Galveston Bay system if you did all the little tributaries 
they have 17 million people in that country. There are about six and a half million people in the Houston Galveston Metroplex, which is about a third of the size. I mean, so when we're looking at the United States and, and all of the competing risks that we face in the country here where hurricanes matter, uh, fires in California, earthquakes. I mean, you know, the politics of, of investment on risk management in the U.S. is right. different. So I, I remember what you I asked me now, which yeah. is, should industry participate in this? And for a long time, when I was reporting on this for the Houston Chronicle, the major industry group was totally silent on it. They didn't endorse a plan because clearly people were going to say, why don't you pay for it? Mm -hmm. This is to protect against a problem that your industry is exacerbating. Sea level rise, climate change is linked to carbon emissions. Yeah. You guys are creating it's this. very and touchy yet, for them, isn't it? Yeah. And yet this system is going to protect you for free against something that you cause. So you clearly need to yeah. pay for it or chip in. And a lot of people believe that. And can I um, can I yeah. offer? I'm just going to throw this out. I'd love trial balloon here. Uh, again, when we were... They've endorsed the plan, by the way, now. They have. Yes. Okay. So that's... And that's interesting. Um, and obviously, in your reporting, speaking with uh, the land commissioner, George P. Bush, and we spoke with him as well, he seems to be... Though, I, I will acknowledge there's planning that needs to happen. The final plan has not been agreed to. Um, but he seems uh, definitely wanting to go forward with this. And he went and asked for the money and stuff. Um, but I do feel like one of the strategies of um, a certain segment of leaders here is that, hey, just wait. Like the, the feds, you know what? Eventually the feds will just pay for it. And we don't actually need to put in a dime. We don't need to break into the rainy day fund. Um, so I'm curious to know in your reporting of the, of the state politics, like why not do this? It's, I mean, we've got a, 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 te a big thing of money. Um, why not do this? It seems, you know, take that big federal uh, investment, match it, and get it done. Why, why, why the hesitancy? I'm not, you know, the Texas legislature is very tight-fisted. Um, they sunk, well, you know, a billion or, you know, a few billion into flood control efforts. Um, this session, they created a statewide flood plan, and then, they actually kind of chickened out on straight up funding, you know, creating a statewide kind of um, fund to support these flood control projects. They're sending it to voters in November to approve, I forget, a couple billion to it would be a revolving fund, much like Texas has a revolving fund for um, water development projects. So it offers, you know, it uh, offers low interest loans to communities who want to build reservoirs, water supply projects, mm -hmm. and then recently conservation projects as well. Um, and state leaders have all come out and endorsed this plan pretty much. And there are a few, including Commissioner Bush, who are particularly vocal about it. Um, I don't, I mean, there are a variety of reasons, I guess. Republicans are, you know, they control the legislature. They control, um, you know, the Senate and the White House. And um, apparently President uh, Trump has expressed support for this project, according to mm -hmm. Commissioner Bush. Um, I've heard that. Yeah. And, you I know. I think he said name it after him is what I heard. Oh, <laughs> really? Yeah. You know, and he's, it kind of fits with, he likes to build big um you know, beautiful things. So um, it might <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> might fit with that. And um, but it's also, you know, pr maybe a climate change thing. You know, it's a it's a spending thing, and then maybe a climate change thing because uh, you have 
Jim Blackburn and other people saying the need for the, the clock is ticking, the need for this is becoming greater with sea level rise. Not a lot of discussion about sea level rise and climate right. change, although people like um, Bill Merrill say you don't need to believe in climate change to support this project. Right. Um, so I, I'm, you know, who knows? The, um, there are a variety of factors. The, the politics are very interesting. Um, and the funding issues, particularly, I think we'd all agree. And, and what we see uh, is an uncertainty in terms of how to tackle these problems. And that's not just in Texas. If we go over to Florida, where we do a lot of coverage, or North Carolina, or up in New Jersey, uh, you know, de Blasio, the mayor of New York City right now, has a $10.5 billion plan for lower Manhattan. It's in the middle of hearings there. There's a lot of discussion on how to pay for the projects up there, which are in uh, coordination with the core. There's a gate project there. And yep. potentially this project might have to compete with those for funding if yes. those get done. Um, I think and, so. And if a Democrat is elected to the White House in 2020, um, they're going to be probably a whole lot more likely to support a project in New York than Texas. Right. I mean, I, the, yeah, the, the politics of, of shoreline protection are incredibly complicated and very state to state. But I wanted to ask you a question that and go back to the title of your article, The Masters of Flood. Uh, which, yeah, we're forgetting about the Dutch here. The Dutch, the, the, <laughs> but the Masters of Flood thing and and. And that's how they portrayed themselves historically, as you say, internationally. They said, look, we are the best hydraulic engineers in the world. You can learn from us. All of this stuff, they refer to themselves as the masters of the flood. But what was interesting in your article, I thought, uh, is you interviewed this guy, Harold, is it Vander Van Waveren? Von Waveren. Von Waveren. Harold Von Waveren, who I'm just going to say the way you described it in the Seems like a really cool guy. Harold Von Waveren, his sort of their core of engineers, flood manager for the country, right? He's the big big tuna on this issue in, in, in the Netherlands. And what I loved about the story was he called into question the very notion of being the masters of the flood and that the Dutch are actually moving past that notion of armoring and fortification as the answer to risk and moving toward this more integrated acceptance let's work let's actually take some of these levees down i mean so god it's i mean so, my question it's is what so the hell? different there they acknowledge their mistakes you know mm-hmm. they acknowledge their mistakes and and are constantly evolving and um, it's very different than it is here um, in the U.S. And the so the Masters of the Flood quote actually came from a quote in the story from this 2006 essay by um, a social scientist whose mm. name is Cornelis Disco, which okay. is such a <laughs> great name. such a great name. Um, and he was um, he wrote this essay that was really down on it kind of um, so it was written after Katrina and it kind of trashed American media for praising the Dutch so much after Katrina and it pointed out a lot of their you know failures and you know it's like one of the there's always people in places that are the naysayers and yeah. we could do things better etc the thing I go back to is no one has died in a flood there in 66 years. So clearly they're doing something right. 100%. A lot of people say that's, you know, due to um, luck, I guess. But yeah, they are looking past these big 
hard infrastructure projects um, to um, protect the country from flooding. That's um, they'll always be a big part of flood control. Right. Um, they acknowledge, but they are um, particularly in the face of climate change, trying to work with nature. There are all these kind of um, monikers they have building with nature or working with nature, that kind of thing. Um, and that was really um uh, the impetus for that was these two floods in the 1990s um, that came from rivers and not the North Sea. And they were, right. um, well, they were two near floods. So um, they came almost to the, you know, there was almost dike overtopping. Um, it really scared the crop. Here's out of a them. big difference just right here. Yeah. They, it almost flooded. It almost flooded. <laughs> exactly. So I, like, we need to go back to the drawing board. Yeah. <laughs> well, it freaked them out because um, the biggest threat has always been from the North Sea, the very notoriously stormy North Sea. And, um, and this was from the rivers. And they were like, oh, my God, you know, what, what happens if, you know, if these dikes are breached, a subsequent um, analysis or inspection of the dikes found that a third of the inland dikes were kind of subpar and needed needed work. Um, so that really sparked um, this big project called Room for the River. Right, um, the Room for the River. Yeah, yeah, tell us about this and this evolution in Dutch flood management. Uh, yeah. The Room for the River, I thought was really interesting in the story. Yeah. So it's the largest and most. So again, the naysayers say that um, this whole working with nature thing, not a lot has really happened. It's kind of like a lot of talk, but room for the river involved, um, you know, uh, taking down dikes and returning the land to the river. Um, Poldering is something I learned about when I went there that really blew my mind is they would they built built dikes, circular dikes around um, particularly like lakes that have been created shallow bays when they cut off um you know the inlets from the sea with these big dams they would build dikes around a flooded area pump the water out and then build entire cities inside you know they're called polders um and audacious yeah super audacious Mm. um yeah, I forget where I was going with that. But. Well, I think we were talking about sort of the the, the evolution in Dutch uh, flood yes. management. Past, room for the river. Okay. Yeah, room for the river, and really a little bit less focus on yes. fortification yes. and armoring okay. of the coast. I see that's kind of where I think Thanks it sounded like. Thanks for reminding me. Like I, this I'm guy going, Waven, <laughs> I'm going off on these tangents yeah, no, and no, then forgetting great. what I'm talking about. That's no, great. Okay, room for the river. It was a couple billion dollar program launched in 2006, completed this year, actually. So in, it involved depoldering, uh, you know, breaking okay. down those dikes, returning the land to the water. I tried to uh, use the term depoldering in my story, and my editor was like, I think this is going to be too much for people. <laughs> we, we can, can describe what polders uh, this are. This is what podcasts are for, Exactly. Um, philosophy. It involved buyouts. Um one of the big, um, you know, and it was controversial, there was um, some farmers kind of in a rural area that, you know, they didn't want to be bought out and they were looking at flooding, you know, being flooded if these dikes were taken down. And so they um, opted to raise their houses and put them on top of what are called terps, which um, back in the day, back in the day, hundreds of years ago, the Dutch built their homes on these big grassy knolls called terps. And when there was flooding, they would just go to their house and kind of wait it out. Um, So it also brought the construction of terps for the first time in recent memory. That land hasn't flooded yet. It's supposed to flood 
potentially like once every 50 years. And those people say, I haven't seen it happen yet. I kind of um, would like to see it happen just to know that this was all worth it. Mm-hmm. And it <laughs> but, Well, yeah. their version of vertical retreat, at right, the turf, which right. is to get up out of the floodplain on these what used to be the natural knolls. Yeah. or undulations in the, you know, back before they were building yeah. dikes. But the reason I'm, I'm kind of exploring this, uh, what we're drawing from the Dutch, and I think what you pulled in the story, it made it clear to me, was that the Dutch have evolved past a mere armoring approach. And, and when I look at the system you describe, and the photographs are really great, but the I also went on Google Earth and looked at the Dutch shoreline, and there's a couple of things that I, I mean, if I'm drawing lessons, here's what I'm saying. One, the construction along the shoreline is well back from the water. In some cases, it's about 1,000 feet. You can measure it on Google Earth. You're not allowed to build on the coast. You're not allowed to get too close. And then the dune system, underneath the dune system and along, um, along these beaches, right, is the parking lot. So... There, the the dunes in are some of them. In the, some, some, it's some, not super widespread, but that's okay yeah. in some areas. But the fortification of the shoreline is access oriented, big wide dunes, well and well higher than twelve feet. And when I look at what the Corps is planning in Galveston Bay and what Kelly Burke's Cups, God bless her, and her and her engineers are doing a great job on this thing. And I think moving the dike from. 3005 the road out to the shoreline and big dune restoration and beach nourishment good move but bigger is certainly going to be possible if you want to we the storm surge in ike was what plus 23 i think it was like 17 Seven, it was, i was under well, 20 it hit, was it under 20 i think it was just under 20 under 20 but i i but more than yeah. 12 oh yeah much more than 12 so a dune system on Bolivar Peninsula or along the west end of Galveston Island at about 16, 17 feet, which is the height of the seawall, right? The seawall 16, 15, I think it's or, 18. Or, or seven, is it seven? 17. 17, yeah. Would, this is the lesson I'm thinking. More distance between the water and the structures, a large, big, wide, hefty dune system and beach nourishment. Uh, in a that seems to me to be the Dutch model. Yeah, but I don't you know, know I don't hear much if you about talk it. to people who live down there and and have gone through several hurricanes, there actually used to be um, a more boisterous dune system on Galveston Island that was wiped out, especially during Ike. And people say it did really help. You know, it really helped reduce um, impact. And so you have the twelve foot, you know, twelve foot high, but also they're looking at. Uh, what they call a run-up, I guess. So they would mm-hmm. build up under under the ocean out to a certain amount, kind of a, um, I don't know what angle it would be exactly, but it would kind of slow down the surge, I guess, yeah. in that it was a gradual, I mean, it would increase the elevation out. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure how far. Well, a beach nourishment might go, you know, it might go out if they're putting 100 cubic yards per linear foot or two. I mean, this is, in other words, they need a lot of sand to widen the yeah. beach. And so sand, sand is extremely expensive here, which is one is. thing people yeah. kept mentioning. It's way cheaper in the Netherlands. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Well, see, this is what's interesting to me, again, is that, uh, you know, we are trying to undo uh, what was done when Galveston, when they developed Galveston the way it was developed, specifically in Galveston here. Like, uh, you've got the seawall. People have developed all the way up to the seawall. And then... Until they the recent renourishment projects, the ocean would lap up against that seawall, and that was it. That was your 
that was that the seawall was your fortification. It had. Compl- and that's the fastest eroding point on the Texas coast. Oh, really? The seawall. Yep. Okay, so now in order to Dutchify this situation, okay, yeah, that's a good word. Uh, we would have to build thousands of feet of like dune system out, to, you know, seaward of there. Because you're not going to you're you're not going to undevelop that area. No. So you're you would need gonna. to you would need to build a massive, massive, massive dune system. Right. And then I guess that wall would still be in it. Maybe you built you beef it up. There you go. And it would just be this massive thing out there. Right. And that would be your yeah your your buffer. And what's interesting is the it seems like the Dutch viewed the coast like their view of water in general. Of course, was kind of industrial. Really harness it to power your mills and whatnot, uh, pump, you know. Uh, but it seems like the coast, they really view it as like, this is a protective element. It should be, we should not want to be too close to it in terms of putting our, like, because it's a, pre- we certainly have not uh, have shared that, no, that view their, of the space. Their mind is blown when they go to Galveston and see how close structures are to the water. Um, oh, and- really? Yeah. And I actually, the story I opened with, so I went over there and worked, you know, for several days and then went on vacation. And yeah. I got the lead for the story actually when I was on vacation and I um, was staying uh, about 20 miles um, south of Amsterdam out in the, this cute little Airbnb that was on a canal. And we biked to the North Sea. It was pretty close to the coast and arrived at this place that was, you know, has a little strip of pastel buildings. They were built in the 60s, ice cream shops, whatever, restaurants. And behind it, you know, looking at it, uh, biking up to the coast, there are these massive dunes. You cannot see the water from those buildings. Mm -hmm. Um, Those dunes are 60 feet high. They're a mile to three miles inland um, in some places. They are natural, um, but they don't have to be fortified because they're so huge. Yeah. And the point of, you know, that Merrill and Bruce Ebersol have made is that, um, you know, if you're not going to fortify these dunes on Galveston, you're going to have to make them really deep re- or really high. Right. There's no room to put them, you know. No, so the they're going to have to be, if you're not going to fortify them, you're going to have to make them really high. Um, way more than, you know, 12 feet, maybe. Yeah, um, but, you know, uh, Kelly says that 12 feet will protect against a 100-year storm, may, you know, ish. And the storm surge barrier gate, she says, modeling shows they can, will probably withstand a large storm. And that, those barriers, um, uh, you know, it's a 60 to 65% reduction in impact just with those storm surge gates, according right. to their modeling. Right. I saw that in the story that if the if you, if they effectively bear, put the barrier across the the Bolivar Galveston split there, that alone 65% reduction in risk to the Galveston Bay. I guess that's really to the petrochemical industry. It wouldn't obviously reduce the risk on Bolivar Galveston Island because we're talking about here the surge entering the bay. Right. Yeah, the dunes are for <coughs> Bolivar and Galveston. There's right. also a ring levy around the city of Galveston right. as right. well. Let's talk about uh, uh, Jim Blackburn's park plan. Uh, there's a variety. There's a huge discussion going on, which I think is really healthy in 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 the coastal dialogue in Texas about what is the appropriate approach to the Houston Galveston risk uh, uh, risk issues. What about the money? All of that is all very healthy. We've got Rice University Speed Center. You've got Texas A&M at Galveston jumping in. 
There's the consortium of counties down there. You got the core. Uh, Jim Blackburn was somebody you interviewed in the story, and he has uh, this new idea that we uh, would love to hear more about. Yeah. So listeners might be um, aware that Rice and A&M have kind of, you know, introduced competing plans for how to do this. Um, A&M is clearly kind kind of of winning. It's kind of a football rivalry (laughs) uh, of of coastal plants. It's the only time Rice is going to be in competition (laughs) with A&M. Yeah. But it is A&M at Galveston, which I I have to say I graduated from there, and uh, we had no football team. (laughs) Right, right, I understand that, but, you know, it's like the A&M plan, and then there's the (laughs) Rice Rice University plan, and is UT involved in any of these? I don't know. Yeah, scientists there have actually helped with storm modeling. They provided um, a lot of the storm modeling we used for the Helen High Water Project. Um, Anyway. Anyway. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. I'm sorry. Go ahead. So... um, uh, so Rice University, the Speed Center, and I'm not going to try to um, tell y'all what that stands for. Google it. They have, yeah. <laughs> Two S's. I always have to look it up before I spell it out in stories. Um, but they have come out with, so, I mean, the backstory is they've always proposed these storm surge protection systems that have been inland, kind of, there was the Mid-Bay Gate and the Centennial Gate. I forget if those are the same thing, but, like, they've come out with all these plans that have been essentially rejected because they wouldn't protect every And it's politically really hard to advocate for a big, you know, expensive structure like that that isn't going to guard the whole region. Um, And I think, I mean, their focus has really been on guarding the industrial complex and um, and the west side of Galveston Bay. And, you know, I think that maybe mirrors like Jim has, you know, he's very concerned about the environmental impacts and um, that would be, you know, that's from the industrial complex, you know, and uh, that would protect all the storage tanks, et cetera. Um, Not so much of a focus on people, which is is the, you know, main criticism. Um, So this um, Galveston Bay Park plan that they've come out with, um, I forget, it was a couple months ago. Um, They say, um, for one, they, you know, like to point out that this, uh, the coastal barrier system is going to take years, you know, more than 15 years to to complete. They say this could be done by 2025 for um, three to six billion dollars. And they're really piggybacking off of there's this massive um, dredging and widening project that's going to happen in the Houston Ship Channel, um, you know, to uh, make room for the giant Panamax ships. And that's been approved. That's going forward. Um, And they would take the sand and dredge material from that and create um, uh, basically like park, you know, it would be a multi-purpose is very kind of Dutch thing, multi-purpose flood control, um, basically like a dike or a levee along the Houston ship channel. This is on the West side of Galveston Bay. Um, and it would, you know, basically protect the ship channel, protect the industrial complex, the West side of Galveston Bay, there would still be a storm surge barrier gate, um, in the mm-hmm. bottom where, uh, where the ship channel meets the, um, you know, the park or the little... In the bay. In the bay. As opposed to right at the entrance. Exactly. So, and that's, you know, storm modeling shows that the big impact would be on the west side of Galveston Bay. I mean, this wouldn't... um, So on the other side, on the eastern side, you have Exxon's massive Baytown complex wouldn't necessarily protect... It wouldn't protect that, um, but it would um, protect against 
a 250-year storm, something like a 250-year storm, Joan told me, um, for that particular area. And he says it would, you know, one issue here is when you protect a bunch of, you know, a whole area, you encourage building in in vulnerable areas because people feel safe. And he says that, you know, um, wouldn't be a problem for this plan, um, I guess, because it's there, it's already built so built out the west side of Galveston Bay. I forget the exact reason, but um, so he's um trying to get a local sponsor, which he needs to to study this. Um, the Port of Houston Authority. I'm actually doing. Um, I had mentioned this plan and in, in the story, and it got stripped out um because it was sort of a side you know tangent, and it's not it's not the plan on the table at this point. It's it's another alternative Rice is coming up with. I'm going to do a follow up story on it. I have um calls out to. Um, the Port of Houston Authority as well. They had told the Houston Chronicle though it was an intriguing plan, really? okay. <laughs> and it was hard to tell if that, um, you know, was um, sarcastic. I don't know. We'll yeah, see what it happens. Could go either but, way. That word intriguing. Yeah, but you know, Jim's point is this will sidestep the bureaucracy and offer protection, um, you know, sooner than the coastal barrier system will. At first, they were um, spending it or painting it as an alternative to the coastal barrier system. Now they're saying it would be complementary. Right there, you go. And that you don't need, you know, um, you don't need. I I guess Jim has problems as do many other environmental groups with the um, gates in between Galveston and Bolivar. The initial plan would have reduced the exchange of salt and fresh water between the Gulf and Galveston Bay by almost a third, which is would have a huge I environmental impact on marine life in the Bay. So he, you know, he's like, maybe we need some kind of thing there, but it needs to be way less, you know, damaging to, to the environment. And, uh, K- Kelly Burks Cope says um, at the Army Corps um, said, "Yeah, that plan could be complementary." You know, I think she's sort of like, "Yeah, whatever you want to do." Like, we're we're she has enough to focus on. I well, would say. And, and and it's a big problem. And I think when I've heard Jim talk about this mid bay option or about having flood protection inside Galveston Bay, he points out a couple of things. Galveston Bay is six hundred square miles in size. And it's very shallow. It's very shallow, less than about six feet on average or less. It's quite shallow. And and even if you gate the entrance at Galveston and Bolivar, the fetch, the amount of water, the Trinity, there's two rivers that, that come into the bay system. It is going to flood, and it can create surge and tidal flooding within the bay system, even with the gate closed is his argument. I don't think he's wrong about that i you know i'm not an expert you always we all got to say we're not engineers but but i think the logic that he's bringing up makes sense and it focuses on these particularly vulnerable petrochemical that to me is really the, what the inter- yeah we it's, got a, it's about the target like wh- yeah that's kind of what the are target, you really trying right? to do here and it right. seems like the right. um the, i mean it certainly solves the national security you right. know, argument. It helps. It's it's two to two to three billion. Boy, that's right. uh, that seems like you leave a, that, the, what a deal that is. If you're three to six, if you're oh, the land commissioner six. and you get elected by the people that live there, it probably isn't your plant. <laughs> I mean, though, I'm sure the the uh, fossil fuel industry would uh, think kindly to to protecting their stuff. Right. But, you know. Uh, the voters ultimately uh, get left high and dry, I suppose, you or know, whatever th- the opposite of that. I think is. they could. I actually didn't ask Commissioner Bush about um, the park plan, but you know, it seems like they could say this is going to take forever. 
you know, why, why don't we do this for now and then see, and especially if it could be, you know, three to six billion, the state of Texas has $9 billion in the rainy day fund. It's a low enough price tag that it could be funded locally, potentially in its entirety. You wouldn't have to go to Congress um, and ask for it. And I think that's what they're hoping that, you know, politicians will get on board with and say, mm. yeah, this is complimentary. It's the first step. And, you know, and many things that we need to guard the area. Especially, as you were saying, you know, if they're competing over federal money and the politics at the federal level aren't aren't as conducive to the, the Texas cause, possibly you just do it uh, independently, you know? Well, I think that's a good, you know, uh, you know, in terms of the political arguments that I've heard over my career that, you know, it seems like, oh, maybe I <laughs> will see. We'll see what happens. We'll see if. Um, I'll obviously be watching really closely to see if they get um, a local sponsor to study it. Um, Kelly has pointed out that it would also likely have really huge environmental impacts and that they haven't done, you know, environmental impact study. That will take a long time um, to meet, you know, NEPA requirements and all of that. So, um, but yeah, I think it's a I think it's an intriguing concept. <laughs> it's worth, I'm glad you're going to follow it at the Tribune. I think it's worth a follow-up story. Uh, and and what's what a lot of our listeners who are familiar with the dredging projects and channels are going to understand is the Port of Houston is about to move a boatload, millions of cubic yards of, of new work material when they widen the ship channel so they can do two-way traffic with these Panama. In other words, major point restruct port channel restructuring through the system and what what blackburn is saying is damn it do something good with all that material once you've yeah, moved it gonna, come on put it to work yeah, help us reduce they're gonna the have rest. to do something with it regardless and right. what they've done in the past is uh do wetland restoration and mm-hmm. because they have to mitigate the environmental impacts under federal environmental requirements Correct. so they they use it to yeah create wetlands um and uh you know shore up different yeah parts of the bay and i forget i reported on the port of houston authority actually when i was at the houston chronicle my first job was covering shipping and airlines and so i went to the port of houston authority meetings and it was as a business reporter so i was reporting on you know shipping stats and whatnot and at that time they were you know they constantly struggled to get federal funding for dredging um and uh they were struggling with it at the time just maintenance dredging not even not even deepening it so um yeah at that time they were um yeah looking at approving like a wetland restoration thing with dredge dredge material so I don't know. I think it's it'll be really interesting to see what happens there. It could easily go absolutely nowhere, but um, I think they have a, a good kind of case. And um, yeah, I don't know. We'll see. Well, clearly the uh, it, the dish is not fully cooked. There's still a lot to to follow, and uh, it's great that you're on the case. And I just have to say uh, that when this story popped. Uh, the day before, there was a big story in the New York Times about uh, the New York situation. And the day before that, there was a big story in the L.A. Times about the California coast. Right. Uh, Rosanna <clears throat> Shia did an amazing job. So uh, we have amazingly talented uh, journalists out there that are following this and doing a lot of work. And uh, it just delights us that we can have these conversations with you guys because you do. First of all, you we, we kind of approach this oftentimes as kind of former pros, you know, consultants. Uh, interfacing with with that kind of level of people, but you guys are coming in from a 
um, a journalist perspective. Uh, You're trying to tell the story and it's just so useful for us. And it's a big part of what we try to do is capture what's in the zeitgeist, what's happening around the American shoreline. And I just have to say that awesome work. Um, Thank you to you and also to the Texas Tribune for investing in this kind of journalism. Um, Yep. You're and very welcome. Go on texastribune.org, become a member. We're a nonprofit, so we are funded by readers. Absolutely. And tell us what you have some other stories coming down the pipe on this exact uh, uh, subject, but tell us about it. What else What else uh, can we look forward to? I mean, uh, a follow-up on the Galveston Bay Park plan is um, my immediate kind in of the works. thing. In the works. And then I'll be following this project, and um, it's supposed to be completed um and by completed, it's like it, the bones, large bones of it are supposed to be in place by 2021. They'll deliver, I forget the Army Corps lingo, deliver a chief's report to right. the basically headquarters. That's and, right. Um, yeah, and they'll That's sign right, off maybe. on it. And at that point, it will be eligible for funding. And um, and it will get in line with dozens of other projects across the country for for funding, including possibly New York and other, other places. Um, I found it interesting, actually, um, Kelly said that, so they've been given really unprecedented leeway with this project. They've been given, typically it's the three by three rule. So it's, right. they're given $3 million in three years to, um, to do these, um, plan studies right, projects these, yeah, studies these, they call them studies mm-hmm. yeah, it's a study a study at, at this point. <laughs> yeah so they've been given 20 million dollars in five years um for this which is she's like i can't ever remember that happening um they say it's the largest study in the course 200 year history by that measurement and others physically time-wise budget-wise etc and they're actually working with new york and other places trying to help them um just with their planning so they can get things done faster or like get get more done within the three-year period because they're all operating on three by three so they don't have as much time or money um so they're working together but i think ultimately the they might end up competing for for funding and um i don't know we'll see the army corps annual budget is like five billion (laughs) dollars right and she yeah she pointed that out and i think you put that in the story that the the cost of the galveston protection project about 20 billion is greater than the corps entire budget but it's a multi-year build out, as you said. It may be 10 or 15 years, bit by bit, they may put this thing together. It Well, whatever it is, it's going to change the Texas coast. We know that the risks in the Houston-Galveston Bay system are absolutely substantial. The right storm hits the wrong way. Uh, we can look at, we're looking at an environmental calamity down there potentially. So like many parts of the American shoreline, this is big business and big risk and lots of money. And it's great to see the Tribune uh, spending the kind of energy and time and money to send you to, uh, to, to the Netherlands and to cover this story and track it for the, for the public is really great. Well, thank you. Happy to do it and happy to be on any time. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Kia Collier, uh, a journalist with the Texas Tribune and uh, the writer of the recent piece, July 15th, find it at texastribune.org. It is called Can the Masters of the Flood Protect the Coast from Hurricanes? It's a great story, uh, part of the Protecting the Coast series that the Texas Tribune is doing. Uh, so great work by the Tribune. Kia, uh, thank you very much for taking the time and, and appreciate your insights. Thank you.
in my car. 